forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love to be comfy cozy. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I like to look like an alien. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what I dyed my hair and I have this little earring, dangly earring in, and I feel like I I look like maybe like an alien. You don't look anything like an alien. You just look like a cool person. What do you think an alien looks like? Have you ever looked in the ocean? Oh, this again. (laughs) All the weird creatures from the ocean. That's what aliens look like. <laughs> Imagine you're listening to the show for the first time and you just say that and then you hear this, the co-host go, oh, this again. <laughs> like, you'd be like, what is this? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, this is just between us. A variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal, brutal, brutal honesty. So you think aliens look like fish? I don't know. I mean, I guess I just don't think that you look that different from how you normally look for me to be like, oh, Gabby looks like an alien today. You just have green hair and a cool earring. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know what it is, is that I've become a Trekkie over the pandemic and now because there's like endless episodes that you can watch. You're never going to. Ooh, Melissa just did Live Long and Prosper. And so one of the one of the the species on uh, Star Trek named the Bajorans, they wear these long earrings. And so I was like, oh, I'm an alien. You know, what's fun is that the, because obviously they only have limited special effects and because like the everyone has to be played by a human. Like it's somehow every alien species is just like a human with like a design on their forehead or like a human with like a weird nose. Like they, they, everybody looks kind of like a person, but it's the future. Yeah. You got to work with what you have. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to be one of the people that's like a Ferengi that has to like probably get there at like four in the morning to get all this makeup mm-hmm. put on just to be like in the background of a scene that would really bum me out. But then you'd get to be there for the making of a Star Trek episode. I want to be in a Star Trek episode so badly. <laughs> like, I want to be in the MCU. I want to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe somehow. The way that, like, Little Nas X is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then I also want to be uh, in the Star Trek universe in some way. I've never wanted to be in another universe, but maybe I should think about this more. No, as an actor, Allison! <laughs> That's what I, I meant. I meant lot- as an actor. Did you? Did you? (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, we have got a great show for everybody today. (laughs) Alice, I'm like talking about TV. Allison's like, you know what? I would like to disappear from this plane of existence. (laughs) I don't know. Are there other dimensions? Maybe. Yeah. Good thing we have so much time to get into it. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're asking Avery Troubleman some tough questions about the world of lifestyle technology. And later, we'll be talking all about love songs. I feel like we are in a real moment right now of incredible love songs, and I just want to talk about why they're so powerful and meaningful, and I might cry. Sure. (laughs) But first, we've got to answer a listener's question. And do you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Three, India! True international, baby. Oh, yeah. OG. Here we go. 
Dear Gabby and Allison, my question is, should we be involved in our parents' relationships to our siblings? How much responsibility do we have in helping our parents and siblings navigate their conflicts? For some context, I, she, her, 22, have a younger sibling, they, them, 17, who has been having a lot of conflict with our parents for basically the last two years. They were diagnosed with ADHD and generalized anxiety disorder after a mental health crisis towards the end of their senior year. They struggled a lot in school and had to delay their final exams and graduation, which has been a major point of stress in our house. They are bisexual and gender fluid, though they have not come out to our parents about the latter. I feel like my parents are constantly fighting with them about something or the other, and both they and my parents will complain to me about each other. My sibling is going through a lot, but also seems unwilling to learn to cope with their mental illness. It's clear my parents have no idea how to deal with them and also seem very baffled about all of my sibling's problems. I've gone through some of the things my sibling is going through. I'm also bisexual and have severe mental illness, though I do not have ADHD slash anxiety and didn't have any problems with school. My parents are clearly struggling to deal with both of us, but being older, my relationship with them, while not great, is very different. I am less dependent on them, and they seem to think I'm mostly okay, so they don't push me as much. However, they are constantly arguing with my sibling about something or the other, and my sibling becomes aggressive and emotional towards all of us. Both parties complain to me about each other, but only insofar as I agree with their side. I'm moving out of the house in a few months, and I can see that my parents and sibling are slowly chipping away at their relationship. Sometimes I feel like they are going to end up hating each other. I feel responsibility to intervene and help them understand each other a bit better, but a part of me also just doesn't want to care. I don't want to damage my relationship with either my sibling or parents, and I kind of just want to leave and focus on my new independent life and my own personal mental health. I don't understand what my level of responsibility is to the situation as the eldest child and older sister. Am I a bad or selfish person for wanting to leave my siblings to deal with this on their own? Should we be involved in our parents' relationships to our siblings, and how much? Sorry for this complicated question. Thank you so much for this podcast. (laughs) It's interesting because I think ideally we wouldn't have to be involved in our parents' relationship with our siblings. But unfortunately, in all aspects of families that I've ever seen and in the sort of dysfunction that I grew up in and the dysfunction of my, you know, partner's families and stuff, it seems like everyone has to be involved when there's problems. (laughs) And it's hard because part of the joy of having a sibling is you have someone to help you go to bat and you have someone who can try to explain things to your parents. But it can be really taxing when you feel like you're the third parent, Mm -hmm. which is a fault of the parents, honestly. Like for them to be using you as a sounding board for what's going on with their child is like a little bit not ideal. And I say that from personal experience. Yeah, I mean, ideally, your parents wouldn't be looping you into this conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, in like a family systems point of view, obviously, you're all interconnected and the relationships all feed into each other. I think it's one of those things that like in an ideal world, you would not be pulled into this. But there's also the reality that you are. Mm -hmm. And my instinct here is that you could be a support system without being directly involved in the conflict. After you move out of the house, like you can 
really make sure that you're maintaining your relationships with both your parents and your sibling and you can really be there for your sibling because, you know, mm-hmm. it sounds like they're struggling and the fact that you can really relate to that struggle and have some some similar ex- life experience but a few years ahead mm-hmm. can be like really, really helpful to that sibling. But I think when it comes to like the direct conflict with the parents and you being pulled into that, I think it is okay for you to be have a bit more distance and put up some boundaries around that. And, you know, your priority can be maintaining your relationship with your sibling, your relationship with your parents. But ultimately, I don't think that it is your job to maintain the peace between them. Yeah. I mean, is there a world in which you say, I don't want to talk badly about my sibling or I don't want to talk? Like, I kind of have done this a little bit where like with my parents wanted to talk to me about Cheyenne a while back, I kind of was like, I don't want to talk about Cheyenne when we're talking because let's talk about us. Let's talk about me, you know, and that has had mixed results. And, you know, it's it's kind of this flip flop now where like for a long time, my sister was kind of like a mess and my parents were like, you know, talking to me about it. What do you think she should do? All these things. And then now it's kind of like flipped where my gender stuff has made my parents talk to my sister about me more, not understand me in some ways. And so it's up to Cheyenne to kind of explain some stuff in my absence in a way. And it's a similar thing with my partner's family where like when they were having their gender stuff, the little sister was instrumental in being like, here's what's going on to the parents and like being like a liaison. And that's what's great about having siblings, ideally, is that you have someone who is there for you in that way. But it's also like, you know, my dad has his own issues with his son, and I'm not involved in that. And I've very clearly, I mean, it's hard, right? I'm not going to say, because I feel like sometimes people on on shows will give advice and they'll be like, just set a boundary, just set a boundary. And like that, what does that actively look like? Kind of looks like being what you might perceive as mean, like It's kind of like being like, hey, I don't I actually don't want to talk about this person. I want to talk about us or like I actually don't agree that they're being difficult in this way. And I think that they might be right in that instance. And like if you're a people pleaser or if you're like conflict averse, uh, that's going to be hard. I mean, my I've said this before, but like definitely people in my family are like, I don't know why Gabby became a bitch, but they became a bitch all of a sudden. And I think like it's really just because I was like, I don't want to get involved. And people don't like that and they won't like that. And if that's your family system and if your system is enmeshed and you've been rewarded over and over again for, especially if you're the good kid, let me speak to that, especially if you're the one who doesn't have problems and you're the good kid, you're rewarded for turning on your sibling. You're rewarded with parental love and validation and affection for participating in the family dynamic cycle that has been this way probably your entire lives, which I've seen. And if you don't participate, if you don't want to participate, it's seen as like distancing yourself from the family. Why aren't you? Why aren't you close with us? Why aren't you move? Why aren't you part of this? You know, and so it is hard and it and it will be hard. But I do think like if you see something, say something. I don't think I don't think you have to get super involved. And I think you can say, do you want me to say something or don't offer it. But like, if they come to you and are like, can you say something you can assess in that moment, if it's something you do want to say something about. But I think your siblings relationship with the parents is up to them. You know, you can't force it. I also think keeping in mind that like, this is a high tension time, like 17 year olds and their parents are 
there is a, tends to be, you know, combativeness. There like it can be a time of conflict. It can be a time of, you know, asserting independence, the parents having to renegotiate the relationship with the child. Also, it sounds like your sibling is dealing with a lot. And so I wouldn't put this onus on you or like if you don't intervene in the next six months, then they'll never have a relationship for the rest of their lives. You know, like Mm -hmm. this stuff can be pretty cyclical. It can not be linear. And so, you know, if they're going through a really tough spot right now, that doesn't mean that, you know, once your sibling's out of the house, once they've grown up a bit, once their brain is fully formed, that they won't have a better relationship. So I think taking some of that pressure off you that like, this is like an all or nothing time. I don't know if that's necessarily true. It might just be like a high conflict Mm -hmm. time and things might get better as everybody grows and matures and stuff. I don't think you should feel selfish or bad for living your own life too. I mean, that's a little bit what I did. Yeah. And and maybe you have a party line of like, I love all three of you. So when they want to talk to you about it, when they want to drag you in, you can say like, I totally get that things have been, you know, there's been conflict, but ultimately I feel like we are a family. We love each other. And that's what we need to remember is that like, we love each other. And um, this is a tough time, but ultimately, you know, my parents love my sibling. My sibling loves my parents and mm-hmm. I love, and I love everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Unless they're being a a way to step into is like, unless they're being, you know, actively abusive or, or transphobic or something. But I think you can help explain or help address like sexuality and gender stuff and say like, hey, that's not okay. But it's tough in that regard, because I think sometimes you do need backup or sometimes you do need another young person to be like, actually, this is like a thing. And this is what you know, what the deal is. And it does help to have a sibling on your side in that regard. But you know, it's going to be there your your siblings job to ultimately come out and explain it. And like, you can't do it for them. You mm-hmm. might want to because it's going to be you think it's going to be painful. So you're like, I'll do it for you, you know, but you kind of can't. Yeah. And I, I think also maybe taking it in a day by day case by case basis, right? So like, you know, you don't need to get involved in every conflict. You don't need to get involved in every every daily argument. But if something does happen where you realize, oh, it would be beneficial for me to step in here. This is a bigger issue that I think I think my point mm-hmm. of view could could potentially help. Then maybe that time you do step in, but not feeling like the managing of their day to day interactions is on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is hard. It is hard to be the the kid that they like. Because it's this weird thing of like, then you want to keep being that. So you kind of don't want to call them on anything or you don't want to like you want to keep your position, which is like this dynamic that my family had had too, where it's like the good kid and the bad kid, basically, which is like not okay because it sort of parentalizes the good kid and like puts this limitation on the quote unquote bad kid. And now it's like my parents and Cheyenne have no problem with each other. Like they are great. And I am having a little bit more of a hard time. And I've been encouraging Cheyenne to just leave me out of it in some ways. Like, you know, she's aware of what's going on with me, but now we're old enough where she has her own relationship to them. And I can't get involved. I do feel sometimes a little resentment of how little she is involved or like she's not getting involved in a way that I was maybe would want her to in this instance, but 
I also know like everybody's adults and, you know, your relationship with your parents ebbs and flows. I, I don't know. I mean, Mal's family has changed so much. Like Mal came out, it was like not good. And then now it's like totally fine. So I don't know. And then for me, everything was like completely fine. And then I was like, oh, there's some gender stuff. And then now it's like a little bit dicey. So I think Allison's right in that it's not um, something that's going to get solved in like a month. <laughs> you know, it's going to be like a long term process throughout your whole lives. That's called family. <laughs> <laughs> I you know. I also think speaking to what you were saying, there might be some value in asking your sibling what kind of support they want and need from you. You know, yes. to sort of have a sit down with them and say, you know, I don't want to be dragged into your daily arguments with mom and dad, but let me know when you need me to, to be there for you. I'm I'm here mm -hmm. for you. I support you. I support who you are. Let me know when you need me to show up. Let me know what kind of support is helpful to you and, and just have that kind of open communication with them. And then that sort yeah. of is a little bit more that you can go live their life and then they know they can call you when they need you. Yeah. 17 is hard, especially 17 and queer is hard. And, you know, I let Cheyenne was a partier and having a lot of problems with like partying in high school and my parents. And I mean, I left. I didn't I went to school. I went to New York. I didn't really get involved myself in Cheyenne's relationship with my parents for seven years. You know, like I was like, bye, deuces. Like I have to take care of my own thing. And we just didn't have anything in common, me and her. And then it sort of shook itself out and she moved to L.A. And like, it's, you know, much better. Like all through her high school and college experience, we were like not friends. <laughs> so that's like eight years. So mm -hmm. things change and go back and forth and become something you didn't even ever think that they would be. So who knows? Like now my sister and my dad are like close when like he was like a shit to her when we were kids because he was an alcoholic. And now they're close. You know, time is crazy. Sometimes not having a clear answer, I think, can be helpful because then you know, oh, you're not doing the wrong thing because there is no mm. clear right thing, right? So this is just something, you know, you'll navigate, but know that ultimately it's not like your your responsibility to fix this dynamic. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've driven myself nuts trying to be like that. Like my full-time job was navigating these people. And like mm -hmm. you, you, you have the right instinct to take care of yourself and to just be open with your sibling. And then with the sibling, I give more leeway of like, you should, you should be defending and helping them. With the parents, I think you can say, I don't want to talk about my sibling. Let's talk about me and what I'm up to and our, and, and, uh, how are you? And did you get a haircut today? And, you know, our big advice is ask <laughs> if they got a haircut today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we're going to have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Avery Truffleman. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Avery Troubleman, an alumna of the award-winning design podcast 99% Visible. She is the host of Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed about utopian experiments, as well as the host of the podcast for The Cut from New York Magazine. 
Hello, we are going to talk to you about Nice Try. Awesome. Lay it on me. Give me your hardest hitting questions. Allison really talked it up in the beginning. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> so your second season of this podcast is sort of like exploring all of like the different things that we bring into our home to try to make our home a utopia, right? Is that sort of the, the central thesis of it? Yeah, the annoying thing is like there's no top line like word for these things like we know what these things are right it's like mattresses and instant pots and like pelotons and it's like okay are they home improvement are they self-improvement like the kinds of things you get advertised about in podcasts like what are these (laughs) things there's no word for them so it's been hard to be like yes the things we buy to try to make our lives like easier in the domestic sphere but like yeah (laughs) pretty much that's what that's what it is and it was because like the first season of nice try is about utopian experiments and after you know 18 months of isolation we were like oh we don't really aspire or no one i know actually like people might fantasize like oh it'd be so fun if like me and all my friends lived in a commune (laughs) but very rarely do people actually aspire to go out and like tend the land and live communally because that's really hard i feel like most people I know are like, I would love to own my own house one day. Mm -hmm. And so like the American dream is the dream of a personal, private, separate utopia, where instead of being helped by a community of like friends or family or like a large extended family or fellow believers, you are helped by this like merry band of products. So we decided (laughs) to examine like what those products are and what they say about how we cook and clean and sleep and eat and work out so yeah that's like there's no easy way to it's like a lot of a lot of words but yeah that's what it is (laughs) but I think it's so timely especially with the amount of time we've all been spending in our home right so it's suddenly become our entire world or at least was for a significant amount of time and it also feels like something we have the ability to control but maybe we don't (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. And I mean, that's the funny thing, right? Like we're all investing in these time-saving appliances and it leads to to like saving time for what? To like check (laughs) my email more? Like where does the time? I'm sure everyone, the people who are privileged enough to know this feeling probably know this feeling well. Just like, where did my day go? What happened? And it's just, I've been very fascinated by this, by these notions of like time and labor, especially during the pandemic when everyone's sort of expected to do everything. Like Mm -hmm. everyone's supposed to clean for themselves and cook for themselves and work out for themselves. Like we're all supposed to be doing everything. And I'm like, does this just mean we're all doing everything badly? Like, does this just mean I have a, like an unclean house and bad food and I don't feel like I'm saving time like do these like the, the salient question is like do these products actually help or not and it's been re- like honestly the findings have been kind of interesting what has been like the most interesting findings you've had in in this exploration okay like so time's a flat circle and we keep getting sold the same products like over and over again like this vacuum that will make your house cleaner or like this this cooking device that will make you cook like better more efficient meals and the example that I think about all the time is the invention of the Dove, which is like mm. arguably the original time-saving appliance, right? And it was interesting because when the at the time the stove was invented, what the stove replaced was like the hearth, 
the open mm-hmm. flame. And it was controversial because people were like, the hearth is the heart of the home. You know, like, <laughs> why would you get rid of the hearth to like have this like instant fire? Like we weren't meant to do that. Uh, the story of the stove comes from this amazing book by this uh, anthropologist, Ruth Schwartz Cowan. She made this tiny observation that totally blew my mind, which is basically like, OK, imagine you are a white European housewife settler living in America and you have to make a meal for your family. The labor was divided by gender, like everyone had a certain job, but everyone worked to make a meal happen. And so it's really interesting. Actually, the etymological roots of the word husband means someone bound to a house because he was always there, like tending the crop. And he would make he would gather all the ingredients and gather all the firewood and like gather all the utensils for her to use. Like he was also doing functionally like meal planning. And like the kids were gathering tinder, like everyone was making something happen. And then, you know, they would bring it to like the wife to to cook. And then basically with the advent of the stove, it like saved labor and saved time. But whose time and labor was it saving? Like gathering Mm. the fuel was never her job. In fact, her job has stayed the same and her tasks have only multiplied. Like now she has to go get the ingredients. Now she has to like basically do everything. Cleaning became sort of a one person job. And I've been thinking about how this applies to so many of our appliances, so many of our appliances. Like, yes, they save time and they save energy, but now everyone is expected to do everything because we don't live in a society where like there's communal laundry or communal kitchen. Like we could have, we could have structured capitalism that way, but we just didn't. And so even when you think about like the last episode, spoiler, is about the, the, the computer and the typewriter and the fact that like typing used to be outsourced to like the secretarial typing pool. Now everyone has to do their own typing. Like we all are supposed to be generalists and do everything aided by all these machines. And it's kind of interesting now that everyone's supposed to do everything, arguably with the most charitable light. I think it builds in a degree of empathy. Like, I think more people can appreciate what it means to be a good cook and more people hopefully can appreciate what it means to like clean well, you know, in the rosiest, most optimistic light. This will build a future rich with more understanding for more kinds of jobs from more kinds of people. But, you know, who's to say? I think one of the most interesting things about the episode you did about the Roomba was them being like, we made this product to be okay. (laughs) <laughs> like that the, yeah. the, the, the goal wasn't for it to like clean great or be very good, but it was like, no. it was okay. <laughs> no, it was meant to be like an ambassador for home robotics. Actually before, so before they made the Roomba, they made like bomb sniffing robots. And then they were like, how can we make robots more accessible to more Americans? And actually they first tried a baby doll that ended up just being like way too expensive and way too creepy. And they're like, okay, scratch that. Like, what's the next way we can get robotics into the home? And it was the Roomba. And so arguably, you know, Roomba is not really a win for like vacuuming technology, but it's a total win for the robots. Like it has made robots a thing people use and will probably pave the way for more home robotics, even though it is definitely not the best vacuum. It was reverse engineered to be under $250, which at the time was like the upper limit. What did they say? It was like, that's how much you can spend without consulting your partner to like check if it's okay. That's the upper limit. But it's like interesting because I think if anything, the Roomba is like is a time saving device, but it's also a reminder that humans are better at this stuff. Yes, 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 totally. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, it's just interesting when you think about like all the design considerations, it was more important to them that the Roomba be adorable and like (laughs) sweet and unobtrusive and not loud 
or abrasive mm -hmm. and it totally works like people feel very tenderly towards their Roombas in this strange way I'm mine like, is good so on, loud good them. oh really really <laughs> I, yeah I like almost never use it because it is so loud is that on you as a Roomba parent yeah have you, have you taught your Roomba <laughs> I don't know I don't have one I don't know how they work <laughs> What about like the Alexa or like the type of things that, you know, are now more robotic in the home? Mm. I mean, I didn't cover Alexa specifically, but I mm -hmm. think something I actually someone just sent me a paper today that I thought was super interesting, which is the idea that like, OK, if you think of the home as a little tiny privatized utopian society, the objects in the home keep getting privatized throughout American history. Like if you look back at the start of the 20th century, whole families used to share one bed. Everyone would just like crash on the bed because it was dark out. There's nothing else to do. It's like eight o'clock. I guess we'll all just go to sleep. And that was it. And then as like electricity came along and more uh, ways to entertain yourself came along, everyone sort of got their own mattresses and their own bedrooms and their own bedtimes. And I think something interesting right now is happening. I swear this is getting back to Alexa. And I swear and like something interesting is happening right now, I think, with the toilet, where if you look at like new luxury homes, a selling point is that every bedroom has its own bathroom, that everyone wow. has even like that viral thing of like Megan Trainer and her partner, like hold hands while they use their own toilets. It's becoming this thing that like individuals have their own toilets. And I think at one point we're going to look back and be like, that's so crazy. Like whole families used to share one toilet. And so these things keep getting privatized, you know, and whole families used to gather around one TV. Now we all have our own screens. And so I only say this to say there's something really interesting to consider about the sort of communal technology of something like the Alexa, where like you, you log into these technologies with individual accounts, you know, you like go onto Netflix and it's like, who's logging in? Who's it, it's, it's all, there's all this rush to make it like individualized when really something like an Alexa like an Amazon Echo should should be more communal. And there's a lot of debate afoot of like, how can we keep some technologies away from this like natural urge to like privatize and go in our own rooms? It's very interesting. It's a very American urge also that we just want to like recede more and more and more into our private rooms. Like as soon as people can afford it, they're like, I want my own space, my own room, my own house. We're very private creatures. And I mean, I have my theories for where this is, where this comes from, but I, it's a very interesting sort of, national impulse that I didn't realize was such a national impulse. What are your theories? I know I do want to hear about it because <laughs> I think it's interesting that, you know, stuff used to be, we talk about this all the time, like everyone gathered around the TV and everyone yeah. gathered around the radio and like now everybody's faces in their phone. And when you were talking about utopia, private utopia, I, one of my favorite quotes is from Jean-Paul Sartre where he's like, hell is other people. Oh yeah. And I'm like, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> oh man i mean from season one, like that would certainly seem to be the case like that just seems to be the thing that destroys utopia over and over again is like people can't get along well one thing i will say like quickly as an aside is like i think utopias don't exist there's no such thing as a perfect place but one of my big regrets about season one is i do think there are people out there who are managing to live communally they're maybe just not like the most exciting stories they're just kind of like out there living their lives and they probably don't want a podcast about them and so i think like narrative has a bit of a tyranny over that that we're very quick to be like it's impossible <laughs> just because it's kind of like boring and mundane and probably involves a lot of like multi-hour long meetings and processing and it's not as thrilling as you know some cult leader so i do think communal living is like possible i think the roots of it ultimately why americans are so you know have this have this mentality of like 
privacy and self-sufficiency comes from the legacy of colonialism. I mean, basically, when Europeans came to this country, they left behind like their large extended families, their communities, their cities. And they were like out here making it work largely on their own. And that was prized as a virtue. You know, you read like Little House on the Prairie is like, oh, my God, they did everything themselves. They were so self-sufficient and so amazing. Some people have turned to me and been like, it's the patriarchy. But like, whatever, lots of women had a role in this, too, including the novelist Catherine Beecher, who's the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She praised, you know, the woman who was able to take care of her whole household entirely on her own, basically without any help from friends or family or community, or even like, not to romanticize it, not to be like, why don't you get friends and family to help, but even like a city, even getting like businesses to come help you. There was this real prize. It was equated as this very Christian thing. Like you were a good Christian wife if you could manage your household entirely on your own and you could do it even as early as like the 1800s, like do it with the help of products, find some life hacks, find some tips, find some tricks, like here are some inventions, here are some shortcuts. Like this has always been a part of the American psyche is like finding little tricks to manage your household entirely on your own without asking for help. Like this is integrated into European settlement. It's fascinating. Are we getting away from that kind of? I feel like people now are like, get to know your neighbors, like, you know, borrow sugar from whatever. (laughs) Get involved locally. (laughs) I mean, this is maybe a hot take. I think there's still a lot of anxiety around that. But it, mm-hmm. okay, in a weird way, something that I find really interesting was I was reading a lot about grocery delivery. It was really common, like super mm-hmm. common to get your groceries delivered. That was just like part of how groceries worked. Because again, like it wasn't considered necessarily, you know, again, we're like talking back in the day when like labor was structured by by gender, like men went into town to like get all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was considered like, oh, no, like a woman has to be at home. And then part of that was like, yeah, you should get your groceries delivered. That's a crazy time suck to be like running around gathering everything. And then basically after I forget if it was one of the world wars, it was like World War One or World War Two. Basically, when grocery stores had to tighten their belts in the same way that like Pizza restaurants used to have delivery people on payroll and then they kind of got rid of them. They had like grocery runners on payroll and they were like, we need to tighten our belts. We're cutting out these grocery runners like everyone, customers, you have to come pick up your own groceries now. And then we basically forgot how much labor is involved in actually like going and procuring things. We'd like pretend it doesn't count. And so it's interesting because now I think people I know who do get their groceries delivered carry a little bit of guilt around it. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, how bougie, how, you know. And and, and granted, like the labor <laughs> structures like around. man used to just come to your house, bring you yes. milk. There was a huge culture around this. Like things used to get delivered. Granted, the economics of it right now are so messed up. Like it is awful the way it is structured now. But fundamentally, like the idea of grocery delivery and that people are open to it. I'm like, cool. If we can find a way to do this more like equitably, and have it more accessible to more people, not just like everyone should be able to get their groceries delivered. That's actually a return to asking for help. I think that's the other thing. Like, I don't think it's just on us to like know your neighbors and know your friends. Like, I think this is one of the weird things about it is it's so easy to rail against capitalism, which Mm -hmm. like, don't get me wrong, I totally want to do. But I'm also like, oh, we could have structured capitalism just like really differently and had more businesses. We could have giant communal kitchens that you go to and like get affordable meals every night, you know, like luckily I have a laundromat that I can go, you know, like this is one of the weird things about working on the series. I was like, my laundromat 
near me has a service where they will do your laundry for you. And yep. I think in the past I was like, that's ridiculous. Who would do? I really like prided myself on being like, I do my own laundry. I don't need this. But after doing this, I was like, I think I'm going to pay for this. Like yeah. I'm going to pay for <laughs> yeah. the help. And I felt really guilty about it. But we have a lot of complicated feelings about it, but it is interesting how these weird like millennial D2C companies are sort of taking advantage of that same old urge. It's like, mm-hmm. I live alone. I need help. So I don't know. There's like, it's so rich. There's like something to consider there. It's not not fraught. It is fraught, but it's very interesting. Of all the different products you covered, which ones do you think make the best impact on people's lives where like it oh. makes sense to invest in these products? That's a really good question. When I did a story about the vacuum cleaner, I went to interview a guy who repairs central vacuums in Connecticut. And central vacuums are like these big vacuum cleaners that are like built into the walls of a house. And at one point I was like, when did you get into vacuuming yourself? And he's like, oh, me? I hate vacuuming. <laughs> I know that was so funny. <laughs> but he turned and he said this beautiful thing. He was like, in the beginning, there was chaos and God turned it into order. And we all find some pleasure in making some order out of some chaos. And that is the little bit of God in all of us. Like, whoa, holy <laughs> shit. And I've been thinking about that all the time, which is just like everyone kind of wants to choose the chaos they find pleasurable to order. So there are some people who like really love their instant pots, like really love not having to do the cooking. There are some Mm -hmm. people who really love their Roombas and not having to do the vacuuming. And there are people who love vacuuming. So it's hard for me to say because it's so subjective. It's just kind of like choose your fighter. Like what chaos do you enjoy ordering for yourself? Again, not dissimilar to these millennial D2C companies. I was totally expecting to walk away and be like, these gadgets are all dumb. Like wake up, sheeple. These are silly. But ultimately, like after talking to so many people and even like the CEOs of these companies, it's like, I don't know. I think a lot of these products do mean a lot to people, even, you know, as something as controversial as a ring doorbell, which presents some really like scary dangers. All of the people who were critiquing the ring doorbell who I interviewed, they all had them. They're like, yeah, it's a really useful tool. So like, I don't know. All these devices are really complicated. And ultimately, they're all improvements from living in 1910. Like, I guess I'd rather live in a world where everyone's sort of expected to do everything with the help of these devices. So I don't know. What about surveillance? We're putting the Alexa and the robots in our own homes and the ring doorbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a real threat. What is the controversy surrounding the ring doorbell? Oh, my God. I mean, there's so many controversies surrounding (laughs) the ring doorbell. But the one that I think is really fascinating is that the ring doorbell, this smart doorbell, which has a camera and, you know, is like constantly collecting footage from your front door. There are lots of controversies about it that you can you can check out. And the company has kind of a checkered past in many ways, which they've tried to correct sometimes with success, sometimes not with success. But I think one of the things that's really interesting to me that I realized in the course of this reporting is like there have always been CCTV cameras and like surveillance cameras. But the interesting thing about them is those cameras don't have sound. Ring does have sound. Ring has very good sound. And that's not legal in every state. There are some states that require two-party consent where they can't just like record you Mm. without your knowledge, which is so interesting that this camera that's meant to deter a crime in some states is a crime. (laughs) It is is perpetuating a crime. And so I asked the CTO of Ring about this. I was like, so you're like kind of helping people break the law in some states. And he had this answer. What did he say? He was like, yeah, but you know, Most cars are able to go above the speed limit. That's like the consumer's choice. Like, why should we make cars go under the speed limit? And it's like, 
because there are signs everywhere telling you what the law is. I think most people yeah. don't know whether their state is a two-party consent state or not. It's really interesting and has a lot of implications for the future of surveillance. So yeah, no, it's super duper fraught. But on the other hand, as a doorbell, it is a better design than most of the doorbells that are like built into a building because it like texts your phone. Yeah, but doesn't it also call the police? Well, it does make it easier to notify the police. I don't have one myself, so I don't know if it can directly call the police. I mean, the controversial thing about it is you can upload the footage to this app called Neighbors where everyone can see it. And a lot of people make really like horrible racist posts. They'll be like, oh, this guy is suspicious. And it's just like someone walking by. And like and a, a lot of it's super racist. And it's one of those things that's like, okay, is the technology racist or are the people using the technology racist? And like Ring would probably want you to be like, it's the users, it's all on them. But you know, there are lots of ways in which this technology is like accentuating the worst parts of their usership. So it's really interesting. But again, like these people who've written, you know, these law professors who have written at length about the complications of Ring are like, oh, yeah, I have one. It's very interesting. (laughs) It's very weird. Wow. I just want to talk a little bit about the idea of utopia, which is what you touched on in season one. And do you think that it makes sense for us as humans to continue to strive for it, even if it is an unattainable thing? Mm. Okay, can I throw this question back at you? I mean, don't you both feel like you do that in your private life? Like trying to get to a place that's like good, where things Mm -hmm. are just good. good? You know what I mean? (laughs) Right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting, though, because My partner and I bought a log cabin. Hey, cool. Thank you so much. (laughs) And so we've been doing stuff to it. And we went and met up. There's a literal welcoming committee in the community. That's how small a town it is. The woman from it was like, we also have a log cabin. Come to our log cabin. Me and my partner were like, amazing. We go to their log cabin and they've outfitted it. It's a log cabin, but it's Full technology, best kitchen, best, you know, TV, best everything, all the ring doorbell, all the stuff. And so they've like got this, you know, log cabin, but everything is like optimized. And I was unsettled. Like I like because it was like, oh, you've made this log cabin in the woods, but you've made it like a smart house. I don't know. Something about it felt like too futuristic and Black Mirror and creepy to me. If you think of us like very poetically on some sort of continuum between like utopia and like Eden. Mm. I think there's like a forward looking kind of utopia and a like past looking form of utopia. Like a simplistic version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, okay, so I'm just going to push back at you, Gabby. Like was buying a cabin and wanting a cabin sort of some sort of rustic return? Is that like a historical looking utopia? I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like what version of utopia? It's like my utopia is I can't hear my neighbors and I'm alone in a cabin, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, maybe that's my utopia. My utopia isn't this optimized. My utopia is like, you know, I don't have to hear someone in the house next door. You should get the Sark quote, like, embroidered on I know, right? What the hell is other people? My partner is so friendly that they would be like, are you kidding me? They, I think, would disagree. I think for me, I'm so intrigued by community living. Like, I wish mm. that it was more 
Americanize, especially with house prices being what they are, you know, especially in Los Angeles, like talking to one of my best friends and being like, oh, if we could just buy a house together, then we could like afford a house and then we could raise our children together and we could help each other out and like be there. And like that is like so appealing to me, but it also feels so bananas that like if I were to actually do that, everyone in my life would be like, what are you doing? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Totally. Again, talking about like the capitalism we never had or like the version of America we never had, you know, we're sold this idea of like play your cards right, do a good job and you will like get your own house. Mm -hmm. And that's the American dream. And then the alternative to that is sort of like the communist idea of like live in a little place and just share everything communally. But there was sort of a third path and it was represented in this movement called material feminism. And what they talked about was like, why don't we just share more? Like everyone gets their private home, but why don't we have like a communal backyard? You know, Mm -hmm. why don't we just like little tweaks? Like, why don't we have big industrial oven? And the basement of our building for everyone to use. Why do we all need our own little ovens? You know, why do we all need our own little vacuums? Why don't we have one big vacuum to share? And it's really interesting because life could have just sort of been this way. Not necessarily like we all go in on a house together, but a little like we all sort of go in on a house together. (laughs) But people are so finicky. I know people who like won't eat food cooked at someone else's house because they're worried about one time they ate food at someone's house and there was a cat, one cat hair in it. And they were like, never again. I've lived with roommates a long time. And my partner's like, I love people. I love having roommates, whatever. We had a third roommate and she would leave like two hairs in the bathroom. And my partner would be like, I'm outraged. Like (laughs) people want to say that they could live that way, but like they can't. I would get like fucking notes put up anywhere I looked in my house. New York, one of the places I lived in New York, that would just be like, clean your plate, clean your plate, clean your plate. Uh, Like the reality of living with other people is kind of a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love what you were talking about of like, you can still have your own private space, but then sharing community spaces, you know, and like helping each other out more and just, it's hard. It's like, but then I live in this apartment building and I'm constantly like, oh, I have to talk to my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Right. I don't mean to romanticize it. Like living with people is hard. Living with one other person is hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> any, and it, like living with any amount of people is like, very, 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 very difficult. And Mm -hmm. I guess to answer your question, I guess we have to keep striving to utopia so that we can just like live together. Otherwise, I don't know. Why would anyone like live with a partner or live with a roommate (laughs) or like interact with anybody else, you know? Mm -hmm. But no, it's not easy. Sorry. I don't mean to romantically be like, why can't we all just get along? Like, no, it sucks. It's really hard. (laughs) But I, I do think that we have gone really hard one way. And there is much more yes. of, a, of a middle ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, and I guess that's the interesting thing is that so much of it, of it is architectural and like based on devices, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Like the, like, again, the communal laundry, I like lived in a building that had a, had a laundry machine in the basement and we all shared it. I was like, that's kind of interesting. Not to say it was the easiest, like sometimes people would leave things in the dryer and it would make mm-hmm. me upset. But like, this is us sharing an amenity. And something that happened after World War II was essentially like gadgets just got smaller. It became harder to get an industrial sized refrigerator. 
to share right, or an industrial right. size like vacuum or anything. We were all expected to have our own things ourselves. And like, you know, America being America, it was sold to you as like a reflection of your values yep. and like the way you clean and the way you cook. And so it became these very personal decisions that lead to the sort of mentality of like, oh, I don't trust the way anyone else uses their oven yep. or the way anyone else uses their dishwasher. So that's right. the other thing is like, I think these products help shape our mindset in an interesting way. I didn't think about it that way. That's actually really poignant. Although, you know, I'm sure people would still get in fights about whatever. Using the communal. <laughs> people get in such crazy fights about using the communal oven. Like definitely. My building elevator is broken and it's going to take like 13 weeks to fix. And it's already what? been yeah, it has to be re like completely no. replaced. And it's already been out of commission for like two weeks. And, you know, I I knew that it was good that I had an elevator. But now I'm like, oh, my God, having this elevator in my building is like night and day between not having it. And like the, the absence of it really highlights like how lovely it was to have it. <laughs> How many floors up do you live? I'm not that bad, but like it's also the type of thing where is a difference between like being able-bodied and not being able-bodied. And, yeah. right. you know, like I I have historically had knee issues. And so part of me is like, dear God, I hope my knee doesn't go out again while the elevator is out of commission. <laughs> and like, oh, God. you know, like my neighbor has an issue with her leg and like she's now fucked for like 13 weeks. And it really does highlight that these changes that we make do have this huge impact, but we don't necessarily think about them until they're taken away from us. No, there's so many products where people would be like, you're lazy. Why do you need technology for that? And then inevitably some disabled activist or person would say, I actually need this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So other people have different needs than you. And it's not necessarily like luxury or laziness that is the cause of this technology. Yeah. Making things more accessible. Right. I love that there's readers that for like Instagram alt text, you know, if you put alt text in your pictures, people who are blind can hear what the photo is. That's amazing. Yeah. It's not all bad. I know that hell is other people doesn't mean it's a more complicated quote, but so I don't want any of you Sartre heads coming for me. Before we move on to the game show, has doing this investigative work changed your mind about anything, about the way that you live in any way? I think it really comes down to what Gabby said, is that these technologies are more complicated than I gave them credit for. I never realized how deeply the American bootstrapping ideology had nestled and wormed its way so deeply into my brain where I would think it's silly for someone to have help, whether yeah. that is from a piece of technology or like we we interviewed Ajin Poo, who's head of the Domestic Workers Association. And, you know, she was like, we want to strive for a world where where like house cleaners can have house cleaners, where like everyone can get help no matter how they they need it. And I think that's been surprising to me because help comes in lots of different forms and lots of complicated forms. Sometimes for some people, it's a doorbell with a camera on it. I'm just like, oh, God, like, I guess, you, you know what I mean? Like all these things. It's so easy to want to paint the world with a broad brush and be like, this is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. Like, this is a step forward. This is a step backward. But it's all like a couple steps forward and backwards. And it depends on the situation and the user and how these products get used. So ultimately, it made me like way more open minded to all of this stuff, which is like actually kind of beautiful. I, I was Aww. really expecting to walk away being like, consumerism's gone off the rails. We're lazy and entitled. But I, I, I love all this stuff now. <laughs> I love that. 
That's really lovely. Would you would you love also to play a game show? I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Some biased questioning. Um, okay, so you and Gabby are my contestants. This game show is called Hypotheticals. I'll give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Does that sound just so fun? When I was a little kid, apparently I used to go to my parents and be like, how was your good day? And they'd be like, oh, my God, don't ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would love to. Sounds amazing. Positive attitude? Positive attitude. Yes, yes. Let's do it. Amazing. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have been with your partner for 30 years. One time, 25 years ago. You had a drunken conversation about hall passes. Your partner tried to put their childhood crush, Lacey Kingsley, on the list, but you never officially agreed since she wasn't a celebrity. Now, 25 years later, your partner informs you that they just slept with Lacey Kingsley after running into her at an airport, but it's okay because she was on the list. Would you stay with this cheater who misremembered the conversation? What plot of what rom-com is this that you made up? The name <laughs> Lacey Kingsley sounds yes. like it is from a Hallmark movie. She's played by, like, the woman who played the stepmom in Parent Trap. Like, she's, yes. like, played by some, like, a hot blonde. I can see who it is right now. Some tall drink of margarine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. Wow. I think, is she also a pop star? Um, No, she's just a, a, a housewife. Do they live near each other? Does she does she live near us? They just had some overlap because um, they had a layover in Phoenix. <laughs> Where did they hook up? At the airport, yeah. Wow. <gasps> Spicy. That's the thing. Part of me would be like, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> but? There's no ability to ask me beforehand they didn't think they had to yeah um yeah i'm fine with it well it's been it was 25 years ago and i'm hearing about it now no it just happened the conversation oh the conversation was 25 years ago and they just slept with her who's on my list ben kingsley (laughs) stop it is this ben kingsley's daughter lacey kingsley (laughs) the lacey kingsley no relation. <laughs> wow. I'm going to say, what do you want to It's been 30 years. Do I now I get to go fuck Ben Kingsley? So everyone wins. Hmm. I think the thing that turns me off is being like already deciding it's okay because we agreed on it. Yeah. You know, like weirdly, the act itself, I'm like, oh my God, you hooked up in a bathroom. That's a little hot. But if they're like, you said it was okay, so it's already okay. I don't know. I think so much of it would depend on the conversation and how the news was broken to me. Mm. I don't know. I don't want them to determine my feelings already. I want them to be sufficiently apologetic. And I want them to tell me the steamy story of how it happened (laughs) and give me a lot of reassurance that like my feelings are justified and I'm the only like I need I need a suite of of things after this interaction. And if they're willing to like comply with these things, then like, I mean, we've been together for 30 years. I'm not going to walk away so easily. I don't know. Did you guys know Ben (laughs) Kingsley was knighted? Oh, Sir Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley. And he has a daughter named Jasmine, so it's not actually his daughter. Unfortunately, your partner does leave you for Lacey Kingsley, because clearly they've been in love with her this whole time. 
Oh my god! Oh my I'm so god. sorry. Twist. I know, but wow. you find this happiness. is perverse, Allison. <laughs> how do you figure? How do you come up with this? It's tricky <laughs> at this point. Wow. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, fourteen, tweets an inappropriate and offensive joke that goes viral for the wrong <gasps> reasons. When they start to get attacked for it online, you decide to legally change your child's name and move to a new city for a fresh start with the agreement that your child will never tweet again. Are you a terrible parent? No, you're a good parent. You think? I do. Why? I gotta say, I think you're a good parent. I don't think anyone should be tweeting ever. (laughs) If we all collectively left Twitter, what could Twitter do? Exactly. Yeah, the fact that your kid is tweeting. Although, I don't know. The kid has autonomy. I don't know. Are you a bad parent? What was the joke? It was a sexist joke. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to change their name and move them to somewhere else and disown them and not be their parent anymore. What? This is what happens (laughs) when you're sexist. (laughs) Now your name's different and you live with different people. Bye. And now you're not even their parent anymore. It's (gasps) not a parenting problem. I'm getting a new one. Oh boy, then you are a terrible parent. <laughs> I bring them into just like a Subaru dealership. I'm like, my warranty is up. <laughs> oh my, my lease God. Is up. I need to trade in this kid. And then when they go, no, mom, dad, whatever we're calling you now, Gabby, no. Then I go, well, too bad. You shouldn't have been sexist. And then the people at the Subaru go, this child is not a car. And then I take them out and I go, see, now you've learned your lesson. No more tweeting. Wow. <laughs> That's some good parenting right there. Don't tell them that. <laughs> They're going to ah! think that that's good. <laughs> I don't know. Give them a little shake after that. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got to get creative because parenting's so hard in the digital age. That's the thing. I can't fathom it. That seems so scary. I know. I Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to discipline a child, especially for tweeting. I mean, look, I, this is a pot calling the kettle black. I had to get rid of Twitter because I'm no good at it. Wait, because did you think it was just like ruining ruining your mental health? It was. And also, I'm, yeah. I just was bad at tweeting. Like, I would just tweet things impulsively and then be like, people would be mad. And then I would go, I don't even stand by that. I don't know why I did that. I'm a different person than I was five hours ago. So it's not a good app for me. It's going to be obsolete. So I soon. So. I think so. I think this is all going to be like some a charming conversation where like his friends start destroying our brains. Like, I think yeah. it's going to be like whatever. So. That'll be a good time for me. So then our kids won't even be tweeting. I think I think changing their name and moving somewhere else and telling them never to tweet again is doing them a favor. And I stand by it. I would do that for myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this a date? You are in high school. Your teacher announces that you have to do... No, it wasn't a date. (laughs) hey Okay, sorry. Never interrupt a hypothetical. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you are in high school. Your teacher announces that you have to do a project with a partner and you can pick your own partner. Someone you are not good friends with immediately asks you to be their partner, even though they have a good group of friends in the class. Is this a date? Oh, my God. That's so cool. I would write in my journal about that. Avery, what what do you think? Oh, my God. It's so funny. I remember this happened to me in middle school. This, like, gorgeous girl, like, really wanted to be my friend. And she was so popular and cool. And I was so not. And I was, like, confused 
confounded by it. I was like journaling about it. I was like, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. Like, it cracked me in some way. <laughs> and I wrestled with this question for the better part of the year, just being like, what does Kim see in me? And I kept thinking it was like a dare or a joke. And Aww. she'd be like, you want to hang out? I'd be like, yeah, okay, Kim. Like, sure. And in hindsight, I think she had a crush on me, which is awesome because I totally had a crush on her. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a date. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. But if, if I'm answering as a high school, you started this with you're in high school. Right. What a moment. <laughs> I would say the answer is no. I'm going to go torment myself about it and make it way more complicated than it is. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Gabby? Yeah, I would say that they are, they probably like me, but again, I'm in high school, so I'll just journal about it and never actually do anything. <laughs> do you know who that person was? Lacey Kingsley. Lacey <laughs> Kingsley. <laughs> she's so famous. Oh, then she's definitely on the hall pass list. Yeah. Definitely. She's so famous, Lacey Kingsley. I like living in our own universe with our own celebrities. Like this is Josie and the Pussycats. Like, her tweets are so good, Lacey Kingsley. The most famous tweeter of all time. <laughs> Celebrity oh, tweeter. man. We're off the rails. <laughs> Avery, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and all the different projects you do? Oh, uh, unfortunately, on Twitter. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's just my last name. I'm at Truffleman. But that's that's where I live on the internet. What an incredible last name, too. Thanks. I wish it was spelled like an actual truffle. It's just not. But it would make life so much easier for everyone if it just was. I'm sorry to everyone that it's just not. No, your <laughs> name is an incredible name. It's like a name a journalist has to have. <laughs> like that person is born and you're like, that's a journalist. Oh, well, thank you. I'll, I'll thank the clerk at Ellis Island who did me a solid on that one. <laughs> that's why my last name is done. Thanks, Ellis Island. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so great. <laughs> yeah, this was so fun, y'all. Really appreciate it. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about love songs. Ooh. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. XXXX, baby! So in light of Taylor's releases, mm -hmm. Adele's releases, mm -hmm. I thought we would talk love songs, baby. Yeah, so, I mean, people like to say that every song is about, is about love and sex. I disagree. So when a song is a really good love song, it's iconic. It goes through the ages. And not just love songs, breakup songs. Mm -hmm. Breakup oh, yeah. songs. One of my favorite songs ever is Against All Odds by Phil Collins. That breakup song, I mean, you can feel it in your bones. That man's pain <laughs> radiates from his voice. That song is like, you can play that anywhere. And I like go into like a trance of like, <gasps> what are the memorable lyrics from it? Oh, my God. How can I just let you walk away? Leave me without a trace. Oh, and then. But you coming back to me is against the odds. And that's what I've got to face. Ugh. <laughs> Take a look at me now. Oh, my God. I'm just standing here. It's so good. So Phil Collins has some great ones. If you haven't heard, also, there's an old episode of This American Life with Starly Kine, where she is going through a breakup 
And she's like writing a breakup song. And she's like, I need to talk to the expert. And then Phil Collins comes on the show and helps her write a song. Oh, my gosh. And that made me love him forever. Uh, So first of all, All Too Well by Taylor Swift came out. I'm in a happy relationship. I own a home with my partner. I'm crying. Why? (laughs) That's what I wanted to talk about is like, why do you think these are so powerful? Because it makes you feel so much less alone that like other people have experienced this pain that you've experienced. And also Mm -hmm. sometimes you hear it put in this way that like you haven't been able to put to words, but they have. Yeah. And so you see, you feel seen. It like it gets to your emotional core, like in this direct way that I think is harder in other mediums to do. Like music mm-hmm. is just like inherently kind of emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certain sounds and and instruments together. Like really, I mean, even like my my partner being a musician, knowing that like certain parts of the guitar, certain chords, certain chords, like it it all is like. done to like evoke emotion without even words just Mm. the sounds it's interesting I love listening to Mal writing a song my partner's Mal Blum anyone who's listening who doesn't know and it's fun to catch them around the house with like their phone being like because I don't know how you would write a song in my head it doesn't I I don't know it's a talent I don't have but I'll just they'll be like walking around the the house with the recorder being like da 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 and a chorus goes here and then <laughs> this is a verse like and that because they're trying to like fill it out you know so they'll like they'll have like the tune but they don't know the words yet so they'll be like and uh and the house where we have a home and then another line here <laughs> and like it's really cute it's really interesting and also to listen to it come together and then when they play this is like so corny and I but it really is what happens and I don't want to it's true Every time they play me a song they wrote, I cry every single time. (laughs) Every time they play it and I cry every time because I'm so proud of them and because it's so nice and because it's so good and goes and it's like cool. And you're like, I've heard it, you know, from the beginning to now. So they were like, are you going to cry every it's going to like lose (laughs) it. But it's so nice. Have they written songs about you? They did. They have They have written songs about me. What's that like? They've written two that I know of, I think, that are about me. Both have been ni- really nice songs. There's one, they have a, they, so they're putting together a country EP. Little heads up, they're in their Joanne era. And um, there's a, a lyric, they were writing it during the pandemic when we were apart for the first like three months of the pandemic. And there's like a lyric that's like, you want to know if you can up and count on me. Like, it's this stuff about, like, me sort of being like, I want you to come here. I want us to be together. Like, it's kind of like about being like, you want to know that you can count on me. You want to know that I won't leave. And then it made me cry because I was like, that was such a time in our lives. Like, (laughs) And then they had another one they wrote about me that I'm actually probably going to use in a project of mine that was about, like, me being stressed out about work and them saying, like, you're great and you've always known you were great and like why can't you see that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I love them I think they're I I'm like a narcissist I listen to them all the time because I'm (laughs) like that's about me (laughs) like I love it it was it's a little sad because the one of them is like very much them sort of being like I want to try to be there for you but I don't know how or like Mm -hmm. I you Mm -hmm. all you want is for me to 
to give you reassurance and I can't do it. And so like, that's sad, but we got through it. <laughs> and it's also interesting because they their songs about their exes. When when Mal and I started dating, they were promoting an album that had songs about a bunch of different people, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was like one that's like a love song being like, I wish, you know, that we could be together. And they would play it. And I, in the beginning of our relationship, I would be like, mm. <laughs> and I know that they don't, it's like a song that they wrote and then the album cycle. And like, so they're playing this song now about this person that they don't care about anymore. But I was like, why did they get a song? And I don't have a song <laughs> together for like two months. It was really, it's dating songwriters really something. Yeah. I mean, I wonder for these artists, if like it keeps them in that headspace longer than they would be otherwise, if like their hit song is about an ex of yeah. like, if they have to like I mean, keep revisiting yeah. that feeling more than they would otherwise. I definitely think so. And like, there's people that Mal like worked on songs with that they dated. They had to email one of them to be like, can I get the rights to this song that we wrote together? And like, just for me. And so like, they had to reach out. And I was like, oh. when your partner's dating you, you're like, right, they don't care about their ex. They don't think about their ex, whatever. But then you like hear a song where it's like, I love you so much. Da, 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 and I'm like, fascinating. Interesting. Cool. <laughs> cool. This is cool. We, I'm, hmm. Everything's fine, which is so irrational. But like even that happens just as a listener to a song, right? Like if you listen to a certain song to get you over a certain heartbreak, then when you listen to that song mm-hmm. years later, don't you feel like it like transports you back there? Yes, absolutely. I don't want it. I have playlists on my from when I was dating certain people on my phone. And I'm like, no, I can't go back there. Like that's, <laughs> That was our song. Gotta go. Have you had like a song with a partner? Uh, kind, kind of. I mean, like, Jake and I really bonded over our shared love of Liquid 82. On our third date, I said that was my favorite band. And he thought I was, like, lying because it was his favorite band. Oh, my God. And so that was, like, always a bonding moment. But, like, I'm not going to give up my favorite band because this guy walked right. out on me. You know what Exactly. I mean? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But there's, like, I always kind of have songs with, with people. And sometimes... You can't go back mm-hmm. and listen to that mm-hmm. song. But sometimes it is a full band. Like Eli and I loved mm-hmm. Newfound Glory. Mm-hmm. And I was like, when I hear Newfound Glory, I'm like, oh, we, I went to the concert with Eli, all this stuff. But I'm also like, no, you can't pry Newfound Glory from my cold, dead hands. There's no way. <laughs> that guy's great. No shade to him. I ran into him once in L.A. pre-pandemic. And it was because we were both at an Ariana Grande concert. And I yep. was like, this makes... So much sense for this situation. You just run into that guy at like every gay event and then an Ariana Grande concert. And I was like, what a beautifully queer relationship that was. Anyway, but you get, I love Ariana Grande. I love Sweetener. Melissa, do you want to come on in and share your thoughts on love songs? I'm here. Hello. Hi. I think love songs are just like the essence of my soul really it might be hard to picture this but i love to belt 80s 90s love songs and breakup songs in my car i have a playlist with the most random songs like what like totally eclipse of the heart yep yep i love i can't make you love me by bonnie Raitt. yes that's a good one too i also have the song you were talking about earlier against all odds my one of my favorite songs of all time Mm -hmm. yeah it's mine too so this is very uh near and dear to me i don't know why we're so like infatuated with these songs but 
I know that it brings me joy. Do you think about specific people when you listen to the songs? No. Just like the the vague concept of love and heartbreak? Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you and John have a song? No. Melissa, do you have a song that was with an ex? Yeah. What was it? I can tell you one that wasn't an actual ex, but there was someone that liked me. <laughs> Go on. This cracks me up. Oh, I've had a lot of mixtapes made for me. Oh, um, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> when I was in college, this one guy that wore like uh, clothes out of the 20s every day and he would leave me like songs that were <laughs> like duets of black and white couples singing together. Oh my God. <laughs> Melissa, I 100%, I didn't want to say it, but when you said he dressed like the 1920s, I went, this is a white kid. In my head, I went, this is a white boy. Did he leave you the song? One of my favorite songs, I Don't Know Much, But I Know I Love You with Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville. Yeah, uh, that's a classic white, white person, black yeah, person that duet. Was on one. <laughs> Some Tina Turner stuff. It was just funny. Ebony and Ivory. Yeah, stuff like that. And you guys aren't together to this day? No. (laughs) He's trying to like indoctrinate you. He's like, look at these interracial songs. Pretty interesting. (laughs) That's wild. It killed me. And then there was like, when I went to homecoming with this one boy, I thought we were just going with friends. And he like <laughs> is driving. <laughs> and we get to the stoplight and then he like turns up like Casey and JoJo's All My yep. Life and plays that. And he was like giving all his heartfelt feelings and I had no feelings towards him oh, whatsoever. No. And it was just, and we were on the way to homecoming. So it wasn't like the end of the night. So it just made the rest of the night very awkward. Oh my God. Yeah. This is wild. Yeah. So that is one song I cannot listen to <laughs> because it just puts me in an awkward place. I hear that. I feel that. Oh my God. What do we rate this episode? <laughs> I rate, you know, what a journey. I rate it 25 out of 24 boundaries and siblings. Okay. I will rate it 110 out of 97 mixtapes for Melissa. Yes. <laughs> mixtapes for, for mixed couples. <laughs> I'm crying. I'm just going to rate it uh, a thousand out of 90. So this is an excellent rating. Whoa. <laughs> just like uh, spontaneous feelings for no reasons towards songs. Yeah. Love it. Thanks. <laughs> Gosh, this brought back memories I thought I wow. didn't have. Okay. That was wild. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> If you are a fan of this show, comment on Instagram your favorite uh, love song duet from a black person and a white person. (laughs) That actually doesn't have to be a love song. It can just, but just any sort of duet. You know, it could be Forgot About Dre. What an incredible duet. (laughs) That used to be one of my karaoke songs. Now you've got the shaved head. Mal has been calling me Marshall Mathers as like a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you to Avery Truffleman for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production. Hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. 
And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at She Is Not Melissa, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and patreon.com slash emotional support lady and patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. Bye! Bye! Forever! Yeah.